This podcast is brought to you by the team at New Zealand Trucking Magazine. Remember to get your hands on the latest issue from your favourite retailer or subscribe now at nztrucking.co.nz. On moving, the official podcast of New Zealand Trucking Media. One of the legends of the transport industry, Warwick Johnson, has just celebrated his 90th birthday. We did a long-form interview with him as part of a podcast uh, last year. We thought we'd go back to that to celebrate. Here he is, Warwick Johnson and Dave McCoyd. Here we are with Warwick Johnson. The book is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick uh, Johnson. For any self-respecting New Zealand truck buff, the name Warwick Johnson will need no explanation. A true pioneer of New Zealand's modern road transport history with a slant on building transportation, obviously. His contact list is a who's who of those who were the cornerstones of both trucking and trailer building in our country. His own contribution extends well beyond that of merely transporting buildings and over-dimensional loads. His life has been one that is a truly a boy's own adventure annual. Warwick Johnson, thank you so much for having us in your home today and for giving us a couple of hours. Yeah, well, it's a lovely day today. It's not raining and it's a real house removal day today. It's only Friday, so that's all right. Mm. <laughs> I want to start the chat with, I want to read the first paragraph of the dedication right at the start of the book. It says, first and foremost, this book is for all of the men and women who shared my life, work and adventures. You could say we collectively took the bull by the horns and lived for the day-to-day challenges. In our final years, our bones may creak and groan, but those memories endure forever. And then opposing that is a photograph of Warwick and his dad. And <laughs> carrying my share. Carrying, yep. And the, and the <laughs> caption says, My father instilled in me the importance of carrying my share yes, of the load. And so we start in 1933 with Dad, Bert and Mum Hazel, and, and you're on the world and you're away. That's right. Yeah, I was only a young fella, of course, and... I don't remember much until I was about four or five. I know I had an injury when I was four. I slid off the roof of a V8 car and the number plate pierced my eye. So I've been a one-eyed house removal guy all those years. <laughs> nobody ever knew that I had a bung eye and I've still got a bung eye, but nobody, know, I don't tell people that. So that was really the start of, of things. It's really interesting because your life's been punctuated at either end with our pandemics and epidemics because you... In your early life, there was the polio, and now we've got COVID, isn't it? So you've had uh, pandemics at both ends of your of your life. I saw so many things and changes, and I learnt that um, you had to learn. You, uh, a practical experience was the best learning curve you could ever have. And when you see something that somebody else did that was wrong, you, you buried that in your head because you had to know that there was something better to be had. And uh, I, I think that I took on board the fact that the stress was the the biggest enemy in life and I, I think at an early age I, the stress level was something I left behind. I didn't, I didn't bother with the stress. I always looked about for today and tomorrow. All my life and people say, don't you worry about that? I said, no, there's nothing to worry about. That was yesterday. Yeah. And uh, a fellow will ring up and say, I've tipped a, a bloody house off and I said, well, go and jack it back up again, put it back on. <laughs> so it, it was no good crying over spilt milk, was it? No, that's no. exactly right. Yeah. 
And so your entry into house removals, even though it was a family business and your and uh, yeah, Hazel's dad, I was dad the third generation, and my mother's father, old Pop Jack, started in eighteen eighty six, and he was hugely influential, he, he, wasn't he? He came up the, the Waikato River on a paddle boat and jumped off that, and <laughs> a, a chap he said, well, he wanted to do. He said, oh, I'm a carpenter. He said, are you any good at pulling down a, a shed? So Pop did that, and uh, and that's sort of how the family went, and. Uh, they had a very large piece of land in Hamilton East, about seven or eight acres, and uh, that was where Pop built what's called the homestead, and uh, that's where their yard was in McFarland Street. So then um, we move on to the generation of my dad, and uh, Dad's father was a, a station master for looking after the trains, and they built the railway lines, and and uh, Dad ran away from home when he was about 16 or 17 from Matamata, and... Uh, the reason he left there, Dad said he was sick of crushing up and boiling the acorns for the pigs. <laughs> so he cleared out and, and came to Hamilton and Pop, and these guys saw him leaning on a fence watching them shift the building. And they said to Dad that was he interested, he could have a bit of a job, but there'd be somewhere to sleep and a bit of coy, but there'd be no money. But Dad said, that'll do me. And believe it or not, after being there for a year or two, when I look at the, the history... He met the boss's daughter, which was my mother, and he, he married my mother. So that was Pop's daughter. My my mother was Hazel, and a fantastic lady. A, a change came in our lives when he won a, a building society ballot, and there was an acre of land with a very big old villa house right in the middle of, of Hamilton East. And uh, the, the £2,000 ballot that he got was sufficient to buy the acre and the five-bedroom house, but it was terribly overgrown. And uh, the people that, that owned it, their sons had gone overseas into the military. And, uh, of course, for, for me, I suppose you could say that's where we started to learn how to light a fire. And uh, we used to have horrendous fires and burning all the trees and rubbish. And uh, many a day I'd singe my eyebrows and my hair. But uh, <laughs> uh, that was at an early age. I was only maybe eight or nine, maybe ten. Yep. And, uh, yep. I think you learn the parables that you learn is something you never forget. My mother was an absolute saint. She was the in-between my dad and, and her. If dad was going to give me a hiding, mum interfered. So I, she might have saved me the hiding. Me, I, I used to say I had more hidings than hot dinners, but the, <laughs> I was always in trouble doing something. <laughs> and your own uh, entry into the world of the, the family business, the house removals, was, was a bit of literally a whirlwind because you were on a farm when the yeah, tornado the, hit Hamilton. The, what happened, the, uh, the polio epidemic in 1947, yep. and it closed our school. I was at primary school, and uh, around about November, December, uh, the school closed down, and, and as soon as I hit home, Mum said, you're going out onto a farm at Rooker here, where they were, were friends of, of Mum and Dad. And believe it or not, of interest... That farm was right alongside the Rookie Aerodrome where about 400 aircraft had come from the Pacific. And any spare minute I had, I used to sneak under the fence and jump in the planes and pretend to fly them. So that was about that. And then the uh, the bid came to go back to school and around about February, be March, April, the next year, I decided that I could probably go into the rule and be a farmer. And uh, I wasn't interested. I had never even a thought of anything to do with building removals. By chance it happened the day that I was leaning on a fence where I shouldn't have been and the headmaster gave me six of the best. So I told him where, he, where I was going. I told him what I thought of him and I didn't go back to school. I think I was only, um, I was only 13 or 14. 
I went home and told mum I, can't, I couldn't sit down, my ass was that sore. Uh, she put me onto a farm then at Matamata, so I spent five months of my time there until the 25th of August 1948, when the tornado roared through Frankton, Hamilton, and uh, my dad was there shifting these mill houses that were sectional. Three Arctic loads had just disappeared to Mamaku and the only load they were standing in didn't tip over but it smashed everything else. So mum came and got me in the Model A and uh, that was my days of being a rural farmer. The old fellow, Mr Thurwell, he said, boy, you pack your bag. Mum came in the Model A and uh, and going home I thought mum was pretty nervous and tetchy but I learned later that she'd never driven a car before, she never had a licence, and the Model A was a hard case thing anyhow. But So uh, that was the 25th of August, 1948. So you could say that was it. That's where it all got started. That's where it started. And I was as skinny as a rake, and uh, but okay, I was okay. And uh, the hardest part, I think, there, that I already knew so much, I probably knew more than the guys that that Dad and his partner employed because of our previous years, yeah. And you had such great mentors and men to teach you. Yeah, I, that was a, when in latter time as I grew a bit older and I became more self-efficient, the guys wouldn't listen to me because I was too young and who the hell are you? What do you know about it? So uh, I did have that problem. Mm. Mm, interesting. And of course, uh, compulsory military training. You seen, you eventually yeah, you got was, called uh, up to do your bit. That was interesting. I, I, uh, I was 18 years of age and uh, turned 19. And of course, the, uh, it was the eighth intake, and uh, we all had to go to Freight and get in a train and go to Pepakura. So there were four carriages there, but one of the wags had disconnected the uh, the wagon, and uh, when the train took off, it left us behind. So there was a bit of kerfuffle. But when we got to Papakura, we had the, the daylight beaten out of us because somebody must have rung up and told them <laughs> we were a bunch of rebels. It continued like that. We marched into a big hall for uniforms and sandpaper clothing and uh, I was walking across the ball ring. I didn't know you, you, you weren't allowed to walk on the ball room, but diagonally I was going across the ball room and the, the sergeant major being a pom, he yelled out and told me I was on charge and he told me to double away and pointed to his hut on the side. Little did he know I'd already shifted a hundred of those damn things and I knew very well what it was about. The door on the side and the windows on the other side so I ran in that door and out through the window and kept the line of sight so he wouldn't know me out of 800 guys. <laughs> so that was probably my day in the army. But one thing I did pick up from the army years in the book was it didn't take long for them to put you in charge of men. Yeah. And so there's a natural leadership the, the, thing there yeah, going it, on. It, it, I don't know how that happened, but um, yeah, they, there was uh, 16 of us in our half share of the hut and there was room for a, a separate bedroom and they gave me the job as a, a hut superintendent or commander or whatever you call it. And the guys, of course, were all fresh off the turnips and uh, I said to them, look, you guys, <laughs> We've, we've got to just buckle in. We're here for 90 days and we've just got to make the best of it. And I said, we've all paid tax. I said, let's get some of it back. And I said, we'll, we'll do something about it. You wait and see. So within days of being there, the, the superintendent or the guy that, that, that run the army outfit was Major Fowler. And he found out I was a, I was a, a house removal guy and he, he pulled me to one side and before I knew it, I had a, a Land Rover with multi-pots of food and, and my job was to shift these particular buildings. So I, I would hand-pick my guys out of whatever and, and, of course, we'd spend time shifting the buildings rather than going on bloody point duty. Hmm. 
And and you taught you taught guys to drive. Yeah, well, of course, being me being nineteen, I I've been driving trucks since I was about sixteen. Dad got a Chev truck brand new around about that time, forty seven, forty eight, was a four six ton Chev, and Dad was used to the buggy, the horse and carts, and he was what I call a hopeless driver. So me being me, if I washed the truck and looked after it, I could drive it. So I did that. And one of the incidents happened that we were doing a job where we needed to go down to Roos Shipping and get sand. So I pulled under the hopper and filled the truck up with probably three or four metres of of, uh, of sand, pulled up alongside the office, and the manager was, his name was Jack Watts. What do you got there, boy? He said, leaning down, talking at it. And, and he wore big, thick glasses. I knew he was blind as a bat. But anyhow, I said, Jack, I... I think I've got about three yards and a uh, bit of a delay. He said, it doesn't look like three yards to me. If you say a, more like a yard, I said, you must be blind, you silly chuck. Anyhow, the reason was that if he had to pay on his docket book for three yards, he had to pay royalty and tax for the sand that he dug out of the river. So by only having a metre or a yard, uh, he only paid for the royalty for a yard. So <laughs> the rest of that job, every time I turned up, as a 16-year-old with a, with a truck with three yards of sand, it was just another yard. So, uh, <laughs> so I learned how to drive a truck when I was 16, 17, 18. Yep. When the time came for my traffic licence when I was 18, the local cop was Darby Finlayson from the Waikato County. Rang him up and I said, I really need to have a bit of time. I said, you better come out. So he came out to the yard and he pulled up and he's beaten up old bloody county car. And I don't need to test you. He said, I've been seeing you for the last two years. So he just sat down and wrote out the ticket. He said, what do you want? And I said, well, I need a license to drive that truck. So that's it. That's how that... That's so, that, so of course, when I went into the army at 19, I was fully versed in how to drive a truck. I knew, I knew all about that sort of a thing. And of course, the other guys were all fellows off dairy farms and from wherever they came from, generally from the South Waikato. I suppose by realising that I knew what I was talking about, that it wasn't long before we were we were teaching these guys how to drive GMCs, how to change gears, and uh, the GMCs actually were like brand new. They, they, they still had the fresh paint on them. They were, they were beautiful trucks. So therefore, our 60-odd guys all got heavy traffic licences. It set them up for life in many ways, yeah, didn't it? Yeah. Never thought about it at those times. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. So yeah. moving, getting back into, your, so you've done that, you've done your 90 days for the Queen and you're uh, oh, yeah. in the, the Army and you're back. And you're <laughs> back. It was a hard case day. The, uh, I was on point duty and uh, I was probably about 20 or maybe 21, but it, it was the day that the Duke of Edinburgh and, and the Queen came to New Zealand for whatever reason. And I was on point duty at Ulster Street in Hamilton and this Land Rover pulled up and the uh, the driver said, oh, the Duke's here, he wants to talk to you. Any chance of a, of a beer and a pea? He said, oh, I, I have the pea first, but maybe the beer later. And I said, well, okay, well, you jump in, he said. So I jumped in the Land Rover and took him down to our headquarters at Knox Street and up into the ramp into the building. And uh, I said, the toilet's down there. Do you need a hand? He said, no, I can manage. Of course, when he emerged out of that, I, I said, well, the beer cabinet's locked up. But I said, well, break the padlock. But I said, you've got a sign on the door that you've pinched a bloody <laughs> bottle of beer. So, so he did that. So once he drank, had his pee and his beer, we went back to him. He dropped me off at point duty and he probably told the Queen where he'd been. I don't know what he said, but the... Uh, it was quite an introduction. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Oh, hang on. Before we go back, can you tell everyone about the flamethrower toilet? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose we take it back to the beginning of, the, of time with Mystery Creek Field Days, and I was part of the of the concern to 
provide a facility for, um, you could say, something visual and something active. They had a, a, wake, a summer show and a winter show, which was everything was static and nothing moved. And we thought, well, we need to have something that jumps around and bulldozers and diggers and whatever so that we could prove to the people. And uh, that started with the, uh, a group of people like myself. There was about 14 to 15 of us from various walks of life. And uh, we formed a committee. And in that committee, um, we were able to, I suppose, move on. We set up a, at Tirapa was the first lot. And of course, knowing I shifted buildings, they said, well, we're going to need a building uh, for the headquarters. So uh, I, I didn't tell the education board, but I organised the school prefab, took it there on the trailer and put a few stays on the corner. And they said, well, we've got to have a bit of a landing because they, they, the royalty, they're going to come and she may want to say a few words. So we hastily put a shutter on the few posts and a bit of packing and stuck it there for the, and blow me down. She gets up on this balcony thing with no handrails, no nothing, and starts talking to the people. And you think of it today with health and safety, and uh, it just wouldn't be like that. But uh, so be it. Yeah. Hmm. So when you were in the army and you went away on a bush camp, and you made a special toilet so that the guys couldn't oh, get yeah. out of couldn't get out of peeling the spuds. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, being in. We were the first arty platoon. We were we were called the transport section, and our job was to go ahead of the recruits. In this case, there was about four hundred guys going to go to a place called Tihoi, which is on the western side of Mangakino. And in those days, it was just scrub and and rubbish and uh, rabbits and hares. And uh, so anyhow. We were there and uh, the deal was we had to establish the cookhouse and had to do the latrines, which was a piece of scrim on sticks. And we had a, a plate with about seven holes that we hand-sawed cut in it for, so the guys could squat and sit. So I said to the guys who were digging the trench and it was in sand, I said, we'll dig outside the scrim. And uh, I said, we'll get that flamethrower thing that we had in the truck. We'll sit that. So anyhow, little be known the guys that sat in there because they were, they were trying to hide. They didn't want to listen to anything else. And they were all sitting in there with their backsides. And, uh, and so I lit this flamethrower that tossed the flame about seven, about 20 feet through the trench. And it let out a howl. And all these guys sort of realised that they were on fire. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think you had to have a sense of humour. And uh, I think I shared that with the guys. And uh, I suppose you could say the when you're a young fella, you were paying a third of your wages in tax. And I said to the guys, we've just got to get some of that back. So anyhow, in that same week, we ended up being at um, Moose Lodge at uh, Rotoiti. And on our way there, it quite a while when you got 17 or 18 GMCs. And on the, one of the GMCs, we had seven Indian motorbikes. And they were, they were going to be whatever. So when we got halfway at Rurufukaitu, senior guys that were, they were conscripted as who they were. They thought they were gung-ho guys. One was a school teacher. I don't know what the other fellow was, but they were lieutenants and all that. And, and I, by this time, was a corporal or a sergeant. So anyhow, they left us in the in the hay paddock with all these trucks and pitched the tents and this is about one or two o'clock in the afternoon and you can imagine a bunch of guys all fidgeting around us. I said, let's get these motorbikes off the truck and we'll have a we'll have a motorbike rally and we'll <laughs> peg out the side up the hill and around there, which we did. And of course we're in a hay paddock with the grass about two feet high. 
And so, of course, we pegged it all out. And one or two of our guys were actually motorcycle clubs and they knew a little bit about it. So, anyhow, we had a ball. We wrecked the seven motorbikes. We <laughs> chucked all of them back in the back. And, and, of course, our two NCOs or seniors didn't end up coming back until it was dark. And come the morning, of course, so I got all the guys up and we pitched our tent and we buggered off because we knew we were going. And, and our two guys were still shicker in the, in the tent. So you can imagine the, the farmer in the morning looking at his hay paddy because we'd stuffed it. <laughs> That's awesome. The book's called Prime Mover, The Remarkable yeah, Life of Warwick sorry. Johnson. I've got Warwick Johnson here with me. We're having a wonderful chat and an interview. And we're going to move back into After the Army House Moving. And uh, you, your dad sort of retired, and you went into business on your own, and then blow yeah. me down, he come back and, and uh, against uh, yeah. as opposition. Yeah, what happened there in 1952? Um, I suppose I'd been working with him for four or five years, and it was all right. I never had an argument, but I could see that there was an opportunity in Hamilton. There was eleven transit camps that the Americans had, and they were huts that were 28 feet by 10 feet. So in the old language, whatever, that's about 12 meters by three and a bit. And the idea was Dad had this trailer built specially to shift them. Too cumbersome. You couldn't get into the yard. The opportunity for me, I I spied a a bus chassis sitting at the local Bedford people. It was an SB Bedford, 1952, with just a set of chassis rails and an engine. So I took it to the local uh, Pomeroy's, the bodybuilders, and I said, build a cab on it. And they had struggled to find the doors, so I said, well, take them off. Those dairy company trucks that got parked up there, they wouldn't miss a couple. <laughs> so we ended up with the doors and were able to build the cab on this particular truck. And the, the truck was a fantastic success. For 20 years, we drove that truck. It was a, absolutely outstanding. And being a, a bus chassis, it was terribly strong with a good low chassis. So I painted the truck blue. Our trucks were green, so I painted it blue. When Dan and Mum found out what I'd done, there was a bit of hostility and... Uh, the accountant arrived one morning about seven o'clock and I said, what the hell are you lost? And he said, no, no, he said, we're going to have a meeting. And I said, well, I've got things to do. No, no, no. Unbeknown to me, they had arranged to set up a company and that was 1952. And they gave me out of a thousand shares, that'd be a thousand pound, I got 200 pound. So I was in the money. So I became a shareholder. So move on and we go to uh, 1957, 58. And by that time, we're doing those transit huts and all that. And through the ministry local, there's a guy called Ben Waters. Anyhow, he talked to Dad about shifting these buildings that were Merry Merry. They had to go to Mangakino. And Dad told him, he said, look, he said, we're not interested in that. <clears throat> he walked out the yard and, and he got on his push bike to ride away. And I, I waylaid him and I said, what's this you're talking about, the buildings? And he said, well, your dad's not interested. I said, well, why don't you talk to me? I must have been about 20, 21, and, uh, and I told Dad what I'd done. So anyhow, it was 123 mile, I reckon a pound a mile, I'd be in the money. I went to the ministry up the, up in Day Street and I signed a piece of paper that said I'm involved and Dad got the pricker and he said you can have the company, which I took the company on. And of course it was a, a two-year event to shift these 200 houses to Magikino. So what what happened, which was rather interesting, there was 200 of these so-called houses and the idea was the ministry had a set out a specification and uh, it didn't talk about tandem running. And I had that in my head that if I had the second truck, that my one pound a mile going to Magakino for 123 mile, coming back with the second truck. So every time my speedo on my truck was actually my bank balance. The long and the short of it was uh, I took on the contract and uh, successfully did the job. 
being successful, the money came through the till, and uh, my dad and my younger brother Graham, um, unbeknown to my mother, he got another truck and trailer designed and built by Tids and uh, and Hawkins. The long and the short of it was, I had opposition. I had my father and my brother Graham running along with Bert Johnson and son. And when they they'd asked Dad where I was, oh, he said to be at Magakino or Turangi somewhere. Can I be of some help? No. So, of course, straight away I. Uh, the heckles on the back of my head. Yeah, that was probably a, a, a bit of pill to swallow. And But you worked really hard until you were able oh, to buy sure. them out. Oh, oh, it was endless. And, of course, I had a wonderful bunch. Of, there were three other guys and myself, and by that time we were, we were a real hardcore bunch of guys, and people would come onto the job and they'd say to, to, you guys don't talk. And I said, well, we don't have to talk. We know each other. We know, we know exactly what we're doing. That went on for some years, and um, in the end, uh, I, I was so annoyed about my brother and what was happening, and and, <laughs> and I suppose I was the fit rat in the family, and uh, I, I, I took my brother on to task. I said, well, I'm going to buy you out whether you like it or not, so I, get, I had a 10-acre block with a house in Hamilton, so I said, you could have that. I'll have your gear, which I did. Of course, the the era was such it was such a fantastic era. There were so many big projects. There were dams. There was the cow rail. There was the dam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Matahina. Yeah. There was it out was of, endless. Out of being a kino, the MDF that built the Murray Murray Power Station, they took on the paper mill at Caxton at, at Carrow. Chief there came to me and he said, Warwick, he said, uh, we've got all that row of houses there and the four hundred huts. He said, all that's going to Carrow. Have you got a you got a price? You got something? your mind I said well it's going to cost you a dollar or two he said don't worry about the money he said I'm telling you I want you to do it so anyhow tandem again these houses were were Keith Hay built pre-built that were sitting on it anyhow there was 20 maybe 25 of those and complete with furniture and and all we would jack them up and we'd end up in Carrow the next day and the people who were all their furniture was in it and everything so uh, so didn't you have to put them on the train Probably back in the early days and the stupid railway had a thing to do with licensing and you couldn't get a permit to shift over about 30 mile. But because we had a building on that was, say, 25, 30 foot wide, the railway couldn't handle that. So we uh, really were fortunate. We got a license for the whole of the North Island for relocating uh, transportable buildings or building material, which was a, a really a, a fantastic plus. Yeah. Mm. So it was the smaller buildings that was, went on the rail. The huts, huts that huts went, went on, on the, the rail. rail. And they, they, when I put the pressure on the railway, they could only supply uh, four railway wagons. No, seven. Seven UB wagons. So they took four huts to each wagon. And uh, so we roped them on. And the, the deal was that they'd end up at, at Carrow. But they, they couldn't go through the tunnel. They couldn't do a lot of things. So they ended up in Rotorua. And we had to go and pick them up from there. By that time, we had two truck and trailers in our Bedford. We could shift about 17 or 18 huts in one go and we'd arrive at Carrow and then we'd spend back to the railway yard at Rotorua and shift those other ones. So that by and large, um, yeah, that's what we did. So with the Keith Hay homes from Mary Mary that went to Carrow, were you able to do that overnight? Actually, in those days, it was daylight. And uh, right. when I say, yeah, daylight, we'd leave Mary Mary at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We tried to work at the... We had a problem to get through Hamilton, so we had to deviate round through Rotatuna and get back to our yard at Tamahiri, which was perfect for the spot. So we refuelled. Our trucks were petrol, 
and uh, and then we'd leave about four a.m. in the morning, and we weren't supposed to, but it was still it was the imperative to get out on the road and get cracking, and uh, we'd end up going through uh, uh, Rotorua, through the back of Rotorua, and through the uh, Rotomar Hills, and all up round through there, and of course. They'd never had buildings go through there, so you could imagine me with the. We invented a chainsaw about that time, and going through <laughs> Hongi's track and a few places like that, we were very good at giving them a haircut. Right. And, uh, yeah, so. Uh, so, what were you pulling them with, truck wise? It was rather interesting because I'd proven with Ross Todd Motors they had the franchise for the international trucks. And way back in, when I got the Mary Mary contract, I went to the Ross Todd. And I said, I've got a piece of paper here that says I've got 200 houses. I said, I haven't got any money, but I said, I need a truck. So uh, Norm Todd, he was one of the directors and he laughed and he said, let's have a look at the paper. So within seven days, they had a brand new international there for me. He said, Warwick, try this, away you go. So uh, that was the beginning of a fantastic friendship with Norm Todd and, and Jim Ross, the pair of them. They're a bunch of hard cases. So the uh, international, they were petrol. And uh, they used petrol at about two gallons, two gallons of petrol. So every truck we had to have forty-four gallon gum, drum of petrol as well. So they were, they were, you know, petrol was about one or six a gallon. And so you were, you were at a at a pound a kilometre. You're in the money. Yeah. <laughs> well, never thought about it, but uh, different people said I'd go broke. But uh, the fact that we were tandem running. Now, what I must say with that government contract, what it said, the Ministry of Transport had to provide the pilot. So that was okay. So sure, prior to that, Dad would use the Model A with a dunny door with a go-slow wide load and a red flag, and, and then the, the uh, Ministry of Transport said that they had to provide the pilot. So that was all right. So we arranged for every other day at Mary Mary to have a Ministry of Transport pilot. It took two years, and we, we tandemed those houses out of Mary Mary to Mangakino. We... We had the fantastic two-way radio supplied by Tate from Christchurch. It was the best thing that ever happened because in those earlier days, you had a, a two-way radio with crystals and, and the vibration on the truck. You could throw the, the, the two-way radio out the window. They were, but the Tate one um, came up with a, with a, I describe it as like a lot of wires soldered onto a piece of cardboard and uh, bolted them in the truck. And we actually, they were absolutely fantastic. So then we had a, a pack set with, with a, a jumper leads we'd we'd bolted on to the uh, old Zephyr we generally had worn out Zephyr cars as cop cars and uh, with the jumper leads we'd, we'd, we had a red light up on top of that sign that we screwed onto the top of the Zephyr so here we go again here we are with a red light and the cop with our two-way radio and he was our pilot and uh, all those two years we never ever had an accident never ever never ever ever and uh, the cop did it. <laughs> Here's the other funny part. When we get to Mangakino, the cop was fairly well buggered, and you know it was a slow journey in those days. So he'd don off his cop gear and he'd put his boots on his old clothes, and he'd give us a hand for an hour or two. And of course, there's always a, a few dollars passed, passed, and it would be in pounds, shillings, and pence. But, but the cops in those days were the same age as myself, and we were like a family. Yep. And uh, they just loved it. They loved the fact that. That we shared the, the the time, yeah. Yeah, and you said the in the book that the police in those days were terribly paid. Yeah, yeah. Oh, incredible.
between the Mary Mary Cow Row and, and the Mary Mary Mungakino for the dams, how many houses do you reckon oh, you houses and huts do you reckon you moved? It went on like a snowball. It just got more and more, and the ministry kept throwing more jobs at me. Yeah. And, of course, uh, this is interesting to do with Tūrangi, and they came to me, and we'd, we'd already shifted the buildings that we took from Mary Mary to Mungakino, those 200. We picked them up and took them to Titeko and Matahina to do in the earth dam at Matahina. Yeah. So when that was finished, we bought all those and they all came back into other hydro projects. They said to me, Warwick, this is Peter Peter Armstrong and Johnny Banyan, and they were the seniors. And I suppose you could say I knew these guys. They said, Warwick, we're looking at taking Mangakino to Tūrangi. We're going to set up a, a, a set up there for about a 15 or 20 years. And uh, we want you to price the houses to go. In those days, the Western Access Road wasn't there. You can thank Hollyoke for that. He provided it, bought a farm around there, and he actually wanted a road to go around the western side of the lake. So it wasn't there in those days. So there was no way the houses out of Mangakino were going to go to to Tūrangi. So I said that. I said, hey, why don't you let me talk about transportable houses? You you could build a transportable house, and in a 10-year time, it would be doubled in value. And, of course, they threw the book at me and said, Warwick, you go away and sort it out, which I did. And uh, I suppose you could say for the next two or three years, we, we spent carting houses to Tūrangi. So, and where did they come from, Warwick? Uh, basically Rotorua. There were four of those, Lockwoods and Hunts and um, uh, Richard Frost and Beasley's. And then across, that was in Tauranga and Rotorua. And then there was a chap in Tamaranui, um, Braithwaite was his name. And uh, I suppose we rattled amongst those guys and said, well, this is what we need. And what I didn't realise that their prices were were handed to the ministry, whatever they got for that. But I had the job to shift the houses. So in that period of time, I suppose you could say, uh, I often think how many loads I would have done. But in hindsight, I would have probably taken 2,000 buildings and bits and pieces because Mangakino was was shelling out. And I'm not, it wasn't the houses they shifted. It was all the worksheds and work, different blocks of buildings and other infantry, machinery and all sorts of stuff. So uh, you can imagine how my marriage suffered about all that because <laughs> I, I was never home. And uh, the simple thing was that we just had scheduled rates and we didn't need any paperwork and the money always came into the into my bank account every Monday and whatever. Tūrangi was actually a town that was delivered. It wasn't actually yeah, built. Yeah, Tūrangi, we know what to... <laughs> In all those hydro sites, they were always lupins and bull and rushes and, and rubbish. And when we got there, of course, the motor scrapers were, were ripping around and you couldn't, you got four seasons in one day. <laughs> it was either raining or dust or, you know, and here we were trying to work. And all we had was a peg in the ground with a number on it. And that's where that house went. Yeah. So we had a team of uh, two groups of guys at, at Tūrangi that, that bunked in there. And we had, by then the cookhouse was there. And... Uh, I suppose you could say with two or three years, maybe more. Overall, the hydro years was about 12 years of hydro work. That was, um, And here was the ministry trying to put the screws on us about our road transport. And, of course, I would hammer them and I'd say, well, 80 90% of our work is for the bloody government. Can't you get real? <laughs> Let's sort it out. Let's sort it out. So, in a way, it was beneficial. We actually used that as a, as a lever. And towards road transport. Yep, mm. yep, interesting, interesting. And uh, an interesting part, uh, just in the early years before I move on, was uh, how your mother sort of 
You had other ideas like um, aviation or working for Caesar yeah. Roos going to Hawaii, and she kept nipping it in the bud and stopping you doing didn't you? Yeah. And we had a fantastic mother. She was like, a, I suppose you could say mother mother superior, but anyhow, it must have been about the time I bought the Bedford truck. I, I biked out to a- James Aviation at Rooker here. We were in Hamilton East, so, one, so anyhow, I met Ozzy. Ozzy James was there, and anyhow, I said, I want a job as a loader driver, and I gave him the phone number and all that, and anyhow, the, the next day at home, the phone rang, and Mum answered the phone, and, and the fellow said, oh, it's Mr James here, I want to talk to Warwick. And Mum said, well, what's that about? And she said, well, I've got a job for him uh, as a loader driver. And Mum says, Mr. James, I think you've got the wrong number. She hung up. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Caesar Roos wanted to take you to to Hawaii. That was another one about the same time. What happened, Caesar bought one of these LTS, like a tank landing craft that had a very shallow draft, and he'd bought this thing on tender in in Honolulu, and uh, he had to have non-union guys to handle the boat. So, of course, old Jack Watts, the... The manager at the yard in uh, Hamilton, he said, "Boy, got a job for you. The the chief wants you to go to whatever Honolulu and and help him bring this boat back." So I went all jubilant. I went home and told Mum, "I'm going to Honolulu." And Mum said, "No, you're not. You you get <laughs> malaria and all other sort of things." And and of course, today's day, I'd tell Mum where to go, and I'd be gone anyhow. Yeah. In those days, your mother was boss. Talk to me for a moment about the the advancements in jacking houses, you know, the arrival well, of the, yeah, the Trawella jack. And... That's, that's a history thing in its own, and most of the removal guys don't really realise the impact that we had. John Chambers in Hamilton was an engineering importing company, and during the war years, they had a, a big plate glass window with all this tools and mechanism in the window with all discounted price and because there was no imports you could anyhow sitting in there was these two Truella jacks that were only about a metre high about four foot high and uh, dad and I were there looking at this in fact we why we were there we were looking at the building right alongside to reblock it and of course here we are gawking at the and I said to Jack we could alter those to cut that off and do that. So anyhow, he bought those two jacks and took them home. They were what they call stumping devils. And uh, it had a, a funny, like a claw jaw on it. So cut that off and put a plate on it. And of course, the uh, the first thing that was wrong was that we needed another half a dozen or more. Two, two wasn't going to do anything. Prior to that, if you'd lifted a building, you used a bottle jack, which was a screw jack. And of course, you had wheelbarrow loads of packing. And of course, it, it would take a week to lift the building, but we could see the vision. So this Ben Waters again from the Ministry of Transport, Ministry of Works it was, went to him and, and we said to him, Ben, we need to get an import licence from these jacks that are in, a, in Trentham, Australia. The wheels set in motion and uh, half a dozen turned up, half a dozen jacks turned up, and of course they were like gold. And uh, straight away, we were lift, loading these transit huts we talk about. And, of course, four of those jacks, you'd lift the transit hut up. Within an hour, you'd load it. And it was absolutely outstanding. From there, of course, the restrictions and, and import licences were negative. You, you just couldn't get anywhere with the government. But fortunately, the, the ministry realised that the importance of, of the building removal industry was more or less getting into a better gear. What happened, I went across to Australia, to Trentham, Victoria... It's in Melbourne, Victoria, and I met these two American guys that were making these 
these Truella Jacks, and I said, hey, you guys, this is what we need. We need to do this and do this, and they've got to be five or six foot tall, not this, anyhow, straight away, they took on the, the task. The first 16 to 20 came by licence, and it took a while, and uh, eventually we got an import licence for the these Truella Jacks that we used to bring them in uh, 50 at a time, and we'd pass them on to all the different house removal guys in New Zealand. I don't think they realised the fact that what we'd done, but we'd what you call stirred the tripe, and these jacks were, for 30 years we used those jacks, they were absolutely outstanding. In fact, to give you an example, Hawkins uh, at Kinleaf, they were, they were building the paper mill machines, and this particular building was needed to be lifted up about four or five feet, and it was, it was for storing the paper. So they had 50 of these columns, and uh, the idea was to jack the roof up another four feet, and, uh, and the Hawkins guy said was it opportune. So I said, yeah, we could do that. So we assembled the uh, 50 jacks, the jack at each of those columns with a vertical, working at ground level, and the, the roof was already 10 metres high or 30 feet or more. So, uh, of course, uh, it needed 50 guys, so we organised all that through the, the riggers and the fitters and our gangs, and... In a, in a total day, those Truella jacks, uh, we lifted the total roof up four feet and they swung the uh, pieces of steel in that were hanging by a chain and it was only took a day, it's all done. All done. So the, the jacking system, you can imagine this, with those jacks for 30 years and by that time they gravitated all through every house removal guy in New Zealand had them. Mm. And I'll give you an instance that a friend of mine in Invercargill became a friend, that was Fred Willison, working for King Removal, Building Removals. Anyhow, for some reason, we talked about what we had with the Truellas, and Fred said, is there any chance of getting some of those jacks? And I said, yeah, I said, as a matter of fact, we've got a surplus lot here. Um, if you like, I'll put 20 on, 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 a, on a little truck that I've got, and I'll, I'll bring a set down. Will you do that? He said, I'll pay for them. The little international truck... I loaded the, the jacks on and with the braces and the handle and the pegs. And I said to Fred, you line up five houses for the week that I'm there and we'll shift the five, one a day. Would you do that? They were doing one a week by using bottle jacks and trying to lift these damn silly houses. And of interest, it was for Richardson that's got the Hall of Fame down there. Anyhow, he was building pre-builts and uh, here I turned up with a little international with these Torilla jacks on. And of course, Fred had a, a pug-nosed Nissan with a high-deck uh, trailer and we jacked the first one up and uh, we did the five houses in a week. And the Richardson guy came to me and he said, any, any chance of getting some of those jacks? He said, they're obviously good. I said, we're actually run out of credit. We've got no more licence because I was trying to protect Fred. So uh, that really put Fred on his feet. Oh, um, and, and then, of course, Arthur Wilcox with the hydraulic. Yeah, yeah. Well, Arthur, uh, Arthur's dad, was his father was Frank, and he was a hard-case guy. He, he shouldn't have been a house mover. He was a clever bugger, and uh, he was building those big log grapples that could unload 30 tonne off a logging truck, and he would make them out of whatever he could find. That was Arthur's dad, and that was Frank. But anyhow, he loved shifting houses because there was a joke. With every house he shifted, there was a joke. And, and Arthur, of course, must have inherited some of Frank's skills because uh, Arthur inadvertently decided to build a a hydraulic jack, and he, he, what he found was two pieces of steel, the Japanese RHS in four inches and the American RHS four inches, one fitted over the top of the other. So all he had to do was to put a hydraulic ram inside all that 
in a, in a tap at the bottom, and, and bingo, he had a jack. And uh, Arthur, as clever as he was, he made these jacks. And, of course, I found out what he was doing, and I said, how about bringing a set down to the yard, And which he did. So uh, the jacks didn't leave the yard. I paid for them, and uh, that was really the start of, of Arthur. Uh, uh, brilliantly, he made these. They were heavy and strong, and uh, but that was the revolution. That was the finish of the thirty years of the Troiler Jacks. Yeah, it it, it it was something that we always talked about. But Arthur, with his the brains that he had, yeah, and he and of course you always had a spare time shifting a building. You might have had a day where there's no permits or you didn't have a job. So Arthur would turn his engineering ability, and he made these checks. So he deserved the full credit. For us, the name Warwick Johnson is, is inextricably linked to the Tamahiri Yard. Yeah. And when you used to go past there, you'd look out, see if there was a truck in there or That's something right. you'd see. And But the whole Tamahiri Yard, all the way through, you, you encompass the sense of fun and adventure right. and inclusion, That's including right. people. Like you, in the book, you say, Tamahiri House and Yard, a 10-acre playground of houses, trucks, cars, tractors, horses, goats and sheep, and the ginkgo biloba tree, of course. But <laughs> yeah. there's that, you know, you, you try and make a, a, what is a really hard job a fun adventure for everyone involved, including the kids. I, the, I was up against the fact that my wife wasn't prepared to help me. She said to me, you got yourself into it, you get yourself out of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was it. But the, uh, you could imagine the phone that would continually ring. You, you became synonymous. Uh, the, it was a bit like Wheatbix or yeah. Sanitarium Hill Food or the name Johnson became synonymous with shifting a building. And even today, today, people realise that, yep, that was it. So that was a generation of time. But it was also, you were also a troubleshooter for buildings in trouble. Like people used yeah. to get you when if there was a building on yeah. a lean or tipped up yeah. or yeah. Yeah. collapsed foundations or yeah. like yeah. it wasn't necessarily moving it. Sometimes it was saving it. Yeah, I had a, a phone call from the police in Napier one time. They rang up and they, they said, what was I doing? I said, I'm standing here talking to you. He said, but let's get serious. <laughs> he, he said, we've got an operator here with a house out on the road and the thing starting to open up it had been shifted before but it hadn't been put together properly and it was all splitting and it was out on the road and they said could I possibly bring two truck and trailers so next day we were in Napier with a with our two truck and trailers and we collapsed and undid the house and yeah so uh, there were things like that the Harrogate Plains house and the peat that had broken or collapsed floor and you had to repile it down uh, yeah well the uh, Every house has its own story. So uh, the different jobs that you got involved with. I, I, I had a phone call one night, 10 o'clock at night, and this fellow rang me. He identified it was me, and I said, yeah. And he said, I want to shift my house. He said, it's falling into the sea. I said, well, when you're sober in the morning at 6 o'clock, you ring me. And I, I made out, <laughs> I thought he was drunk, you see. So 6 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and he said, I'm bloody serious. He said, the porch has gone overnight, and he said, the house is going to go. He said, would you come? So this was down at Marpew, Mopew, down the coast towards New Plymouth. So we bundled everything in, and by about midday that day, we, we rescued the house off the cliff about 100 feet straight down to the sea. And then there was the uh, the Harzant house at Hay where the sand, the foundations in the sand. Oh, yeah, that was another one. That was a fellow there, Fred Harzant. And uh, he was a very clever guy making saddles for the American. He made a, a saddle for horses. But now he probably had plenty of money at the hot water beach. And they built this flash house up on the top of the sand. And the whole house had about a 12-inch lean. The whole thing was leaning. And, of course, the sand was getting blown away with the wind. So anyhow... Uh, 
yeah, had a concrete floor. So anyhow, the back end was all right. So uh, we put our jacks, our bottle jacks, we had 50, 20 tonne jacks, and we put them and lifted the building up. And of course, the next thing was to cut holes inside the house with the floor and shovel the sand in with the water. And of course, we just kept wheeling the sand in and, until it was all chocker. And uh, we lifted the house above the datum so that it would settle down a bit, which it did. Yeah, that was just another one. So um, yeah, it goes on. The, the move that put you on the in the in the television and the in the yeah. in the living rooms of everyone in the country yeah, is, was, is, is Mary, the, we call it St Mary's. The St Mary's and, Cathedral and prior, move. Prior to that, I suppose you could say I had a history of shifting churches. I used to shift an average of about seven seven churches a year throughout the North Island. I'd become known as a church guy. <laughs> so the phone rang this day, and it was the guy Dean Rymer. He was the so-called parson or minister of the Anglican Church at Parnell. I get up there and I open the trap door, and it's something that happens when the experience you have. In this case, I opened the trap door and all the cobwebs and everything came out with the doors. I pulled the door open. You know what that told me? I was the only guy that opened that trap door, so I knew that I, I had the key in my pocket. <laughs> so uh, I, I said to Dean Rymer, I said, we better have a cup of tea and talk about this. So went over to his wherever, his parsonage, sat there. He was an Aussie. He's the minister of Anglican or whatever. And he was telling me how they're going to dismantle the church and was I interested in you're going to set up a tower crane in the middle of Parnell Road and they'd flick it all over and rebuild it. And I said, well, why don't you shift it in one piece? And he said, he was sort of gobsmacked a bit. He said, really, you could do that? And I said, yeah. I said, um, yeah, I reckon I could shift it. So anyhow, that's with Becca Carter. Um, they had to have an engineer because I wasn't qualified as an engineer. They they didn't know who the hell I was. So anyhow, um, I submitted a price. I think it was about one hundred and seventy three thousand pounds, and that was back in uh, nineteen nineteen eighty. I'm losing track of it. Nineteen eighty one, because nineteen eighty two was the day we shifted it. But in nineteen eighty one, at the tail end of, of that year. It was a case of starting to look the possibility of assembling the gear, and of course uh, it, that that just didn't happen straight away. And uh, I went to the Huntley Power site, and I got some massive big steel beams, and I had all them to weld up. So four of those made a beam that was sixty-five feet long. I did several of those. And I learned how to weld, did all that. So um, yeah, so we jacked the building up, jacked it up in the air, and uh, set two to move it across the road. And, how uh, how um, heavy was it? What? Well, what happened, um, Becca Carter, and you relied on, <laughs> here we go, professional guys, and they slipped up there. What they didn't realise is that the, the studs of the building were eight by six, and that's, that's eight inches by six inches, and they were 26 feet long, and about every, every two to three feet there's what you call a stud. Anyhow, of course, there was that, and then the, the weatherboards on the outside were pit sawn because the building was 96 or 98 years old, and uh, the weatherboards were all pit sawn. So, uh, and then, of course, it came to the stage of uh, saying, well, what about the match lining? So the match lining inside was exactly the same. So here were the walls about 16 or 18 inches thick, and the, the window sills, I should have realised that the, the sill board it was big enough for you to sit on. It was about... 14 or 15 inches, and of course that was the, the width of the frame. So it added another 96 tonne 
to the weight of the building. So the building, they estimated it ran about 230-odd tonne or something like that. It ended up at about 378 tonne. And, of course, the jacking system, unbeknown to me, um, we were at maximum and uh, was quite serious. In fact, I can say I cringe to do today for the risk that we took. The, the jacks, I, I had 10 of those American Unified jacks that were per- perfect for the job, but I needed another another set of 10, which I organised through a phone call through Robin Renshaw of Chicago. So anyhow, the jacking system arrived and we jacked the building up. And when we put the pressure on, of course, the, the building was that heavy, the, the valves on, the, on the, the jacking systems, they just squealed, they just whistled. So I rang Renshaw in America and I said, Robin, your jacking system is not working, we can't lift the building. And he said, I shouldn't tell you, but he said, there's a little valve underneath such and such. If you were to twist that around a bit, he said, you'll increase the pressure. So, of course, we increased the thing and... And, of course, the whistling stopped and the thing went up. And so here we were with it sitting up in the air, 22 inches up in the air on 20 jacks, weighing 370-odd tonne, thank you very much. And, of course, we had to put the plates and the rollers in to, to start the roller. So there we were, yeah. And, the, um, and you say the, the pine rollers compared to the Rimu yeah. rollers. Yeah, well, going back into yesteryear, the veneer cores that we used to get were Rimu. And, of course, they were as hard, they were the centre core of a tree. When I tried to get Rimu centre core pot, like uh, rollers, which were nine inches in diameter, I couldn't get them. I ended up with pine, and the pine was soft. Okay, so the idea was use put more in. But as the rollers were coming out the back, they were squashed. They were uh, probably dented by about an inch and a half. They were virtually the back end. The, the back wall of the building weighed nearly ninety ton. And, of course, the steel was bending down, or it wasn't bending, but the, the weight was intense. And what was happening with the excavators digging out underneath, we'd stirred up the ground made it like porridge. And, of course, the tail of the building was sinking back down. And, and I knew I wasn't telling anybody else, but I said, well, let's get this damn thing going, because the more the, the ground underneath was turning to porridge, and, of course, the rollers were there. They were, they were getting decimated. They were, we were in trouble. We yep. had the trucks and the winching power, and... We winched the thing across the road. And then you took six hours. Swung it around into position? Yeah, they said it was impossible. The, what the hell do you think you're doing? And uh, there were different people in the, in the group of about five or 6,000 people that were all walking around thinking, health and safety today. <laughs> <laughs> no question of that. Yeah, there yeah. were wire ropes and track excavators and cranes and all that. And, and of course, the, the, the photos don't do justice to the number of people, but there were thousands of people. There'd be guys that were professional and, and one or two house movers. And they said, Warwick, it's impossible. How the hell are you going to turn it? And they said, you'll never do it. And I said, well, I'm going to have to do it. Because in the early days, if they were remove rollers, you could cut the rollers and you could walk the building around, which is what I intended to do. But, of course, the pine rollers, you, you hit them with it and they just weren't going nowhere. So here I was, cliff stack, with a thing straight across the road with... No knowledge of how I was going to turn it. So, uh, and so you used hydraulic dollies to do that? Yeah, so what happened from then, uh, Trevor Jones from the... Uh, the story thickens. Dale Heavy Haulage, or, yeah, Dale's, the fellow carpenter, was at the stage of selling up Dale's, and there was a yard full of stuff. The committee trailers were there, and there was a massive big turntable that was as, as big as the sitting room, and it was the keystone for the sh- twisting the building. 
So when you put two pieces of paper, one on top of the other, you'd naturally put that in the centre and you think, well, that's where you'd turn it. It so happened, two pieces of paper, the turn table was way down the back end of the church and that's where the pivot had to be when you twist two pieces of paper around. So yeah. I did that. And then the, the deal came with, with Carpenter for the two trailers. So the freightways... They puffed themselves up and put their banners on and made out that they were shifting the building. And they said, Warwick, as long as we can fly the flag, we don't want you can have the trailer. <laughs> so, uh, a bit more graft, so there's a bit of sort of petty cash went underneath the whatever. Yeah. And the Freightway Dales guys, they were neat, neat guys, there's photos of some of them there. Yeah. They gave us a hand for a few days while we twisted it around. And, and we put every wheel at the centre to that turntable, was all at 90 degrees of that. Now, here's an interesting thing. The, the whiskers that we made at the yard were longer than the width of the building, so they stuck out either side, and there was a row of about seven or eight sticking out, and, and of course, we had guys with a laser level and the engineers telling us that we were going to buckle their building and all that, so that here were these these steel beams, so what happened? So the whiskers are the steel beams, the runners under the building. Yeah, they were yeah. massive. They were, were 12 inches square. They were massive, and they would come from the Huntley power side, and, and I put four of those welded together, and of course... The welder guy that showed me how to do it, he said the welding will be stronger than the steel. Yeah. So I felt happy about that. So then to keep the building in line, what I did at the, the beam at, we'll say, that, that end and the beam at the other end, I put a string line and built a packing and put a string line over that. And then when you go to the beach and you make a sandcastle, so I made a sandcastle on each of those beams and I stuck a little pin in it that that, that string line was there. So the string line was over the top of that pin and as we were winching, you could keep that, the, we had about seven winches twisting it around, but the, the simplicity of it and how clever I was, with the, I kept the building with that the string line, with that pin there, you could say that that was it. That was it. And, and the guys walking around, these engineers, and Becker Carter and all the clever buggers, and, um, here I was, and that was my magic being able to keep the building in, in a straight line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it, 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 you can probably say <laughs> that experience is a great teacher, and there's no shortage of that in our type of industry. And, and most house removal guys are very clever, and don't underestimate them. Well, look at um, look at lowering big tanks using blocks of ice. Looking to lowering big tanks using blocks of ice. Yeah, that was the that was the oil tanks. That yeah, was a, yeah, that was the shell oil and. Uh, in Mount Monganui, and for some reason I got a call to, would I possibly lift the tank? And of course I'd never done one, but I got them to brace the inside and whatever. So we put our 60 odd jacks right round with a unified jack and we lifted it up four feet, put it on pig's tie so they could build a new base, whatever they did, and they tar sealed it all. And of course the day come to let it down and the superintendent said, Warwick, you, you're just not gonna dig that my bloody tar seal up and I said no 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 it's all right I've got it sorted out <clears throat> and I knew that the second tank they were mumbling about that and I said well how about we do a deal with the two tanks together and I'll tell you what I'm going to do so yeah okay right so anyhow <clears throat> I said I'm going to use blocks of ice and I had a cool store guy down the road with 60 apple boxes with plastic bags and he'd made a half-ton truckload of ice blocks. So uh, later in the day, the little truck turned up with all these ice blocks about the size of an apple box. We put all them around the around the tank, took our jacks away because lowered it down. And these ice blocks were about, in the old language, 14 inches high, maybe like that, a bit higher. Anyhow, I took our jacks away, and of course, 
you'd say, well, the whole thing's going to crunch and crap to the ground. Well, it didn't go like that. So here we were sitting wondering what was going to happen. So I said to one of my guys, you go around that way and I'll go this way. So you just tapped it with a sledgehammer and it would shatter like crystal. So it took about four hours for the, for the ice to melt. So here he is on the phone to England to Shell Oil, and he said, believe it or not, they're bloody stupid Kiwi guys. He said, they've let my tank down on blocks of ice. <laughs> and how heavy was the tank? Yeah. Oh, it, was a, it would be over 120 tonne, maybe more. No, no, we didn't know, didn't, didn't monitor the weight. But anyhow, we did the second tank the same, and, and then from then I did another six or seven in Napier down to Nelson with my son Grant. He went down there and did those with the, uh, with the dollies that yep. Peterkin did. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. So the book's called uh, Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick Johnson. It's, we, we've barely touched on the stories that are in it, and uh, we're not going to tell you them all because you're going to have to go on to uh, uh, newzealandtrucking.co.nz, the shop, and buy yourself your own copy. It is a remarkable piece of New Zealand uh, transport history uh, written by a remarkable man. And um, how old are you today, Warwick? I'm, I'm 88. In fact, I keep adding, adding that up, but I reckon I'm 88, so I'm ticking on. Yep, and it's sharp as a tack. Well, I'm all right. My head's all right that's on my shoulders, but from the shoulders down, I'm what you call bucket. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I never thought that would happen. Dad used to say, you wait until you get to my age, boy. Okay, the book is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of uh, Warwick Johnson. And, and look, to be fair, we've barely touched on the stories that are in the book. There's a fantastic story about Warwick's encounter with a real-life gangster and how he, how he got the better of, um, of him. And um, Warwick himself sitting here says the book itself is probably 10% of his life stories that he that he could have put in. It could have been the size of a phone book. Remarkable snapshot of, of, of an amazing man's um, career in, in the building removal game, and, and he's right here with me now. And Warwick, I want to move now on to... Uh, we're a trucking magazine, first and foremost, and I want to move on to trucks and trailers. And in the book, you actually say that your love of trailer design and building was so great that you actually... You're almost... Yeah. You almost ditch house moving for trailer design. Yeah. I, I take you back in my life. The war years had just concluded and uh, impact was to have a trailer for shifting these transit camps. And Dad was talking to an engineer that would build the chassis and uh, the trailer had to be designed. It was over length and uh, it wasn't allowed to have a deck on it because you weren't allowed to carry cement or timber or, so it was just an open frame. The front axle was out of a Morris commercial bus uh, from the Huntley and the back end was an axle that Jack Tidd found with some six-stud Ford hubs and the brakes were only two inches and uh, they were, was all hydraulic. The only time the brakes worked was the day of the vehicle inspector when he turned up, so we'd <laughs> screw the valves up with a screwdriver and, of course, the, it skid the wheels, no trouble, so that was that. Was that. The day he did the, the warranty, he sat on the back with a, a gallon tin of yellow paint and I said, what's that for? And uh, he said, I'm going to tip it on the tyre when you go up round the corner up there. And I said to Dad, make sure you go on the other side of the road when you go round the corner because the trailer's going to cut across the grass. So when he got round the corner, the fellow's hanging on to the trailer for grim death because Dad thought he had a horse and cart. So anyhow, the yellow paint was on the road. He said to Dad, it, it actually tracks brilliant. But he didn't know that the front part of the track was on the other side of the road. <laughs> So that was that. That was the start of it. And, uh, of course, I was only about 16 or 17. And uh, I think that at a younger age, I was sharper. Uh, my dad was more interested in a, a horse and cart and a sledge or a konaki. And 
we go back beyond that to, to Pop, that was Dad's father-in-law or Mum's father, George Jack, and he made his wheels, he made them out of, out of wood, and there was steel rim with wood put in the middle, then he'd drill a hole in the middle and set fire to the centre to get it honed out to about a, a five-inch cone so a stub axle would, would fit on it. And the only lubrication they had was a, a four-gallon tin of water that you had to walk alongside to, to tip it on the hub so it didn't catch on fire. The trailer that Dad built was done out of m mostly second-hand stuff. The Chev truck, of course, was only a, a four-, six-ton Chev, so it was blessed with the job of, of handing the trailer, which it did. I suppose you could say we put up with that. I did, from my point of view. Um, that was 1948, and during the... Uh, during the 50s, the pressure where we needed a, a bigger platform trailer, we are always having to shift buildings with, with, say, four trucks, two going forward and two going back. So the, a 40-foot chassis was what we needed, which we got permission to build. And uh, actually Hawkins built the, the steel frame and was 9 foot 6 by 40 feet and Tids did the wheel assembly. So that was the start of it. The, um, prior to that, we used the dollies that Tid had and we put them alongside that trailer and we took 20 houses up to Kopoka to the coal mine. That was when they were building the Murimuri power station. And these wobbly wheel dollies would sit alongside the trailer and I had the, the Bedford, SP Bedford bus chassis with a two-speed diff and the truck was uh, 300 cubic inch, about 120 horsepower. Of course, that was the tractor. The dollies were there, we bolted them alongside but there was no brakes and no air, no nothing. The vacuum two-inch thing to the trailer was insignificant. So eventually the, uh, the day came when we used those dollies in a, in a steel frame, made a trailer. So uh, when I took over in 1957-58, of course that trailer was the keystone to what we were doing. Take you further along the trail, the transport in general, that was Ian Stevenson and Bill Bock. They were just two young fellas that started a a workshop in Kent Street in Frankton, and uh, I said to them, I said, Ian, uh, I want to build a couple of trailers, and uh, I said, the loads we seem to do are about 36, 38, 40 feet, so to keep within the law, we built a trailer, we actually built two trailers that were 34 feet long, only by 8 foot wide, so I'm talking an imperial measurement, and of course they were 825, 20 tyres, second hand, of interest, they were Bedford hubs, you couldn't buy you couldn't buy uh, probably certified axles. The, the front axles, <clears throat> normally you'd target a 15-inch axle by buying uh, an American low-loader trailer. you tip it upside down and you'd get the 15-inch uh, the wheels and hubs out of it. So transport in general, they said to me, well, hey, Warwick, we can't get those. So what we did, we got some three-ton Bedford hubs that were only 16-inch, so... We had 825 16-inch hubs, and it was totally unethical to, to use them, but that was really the best we could, so they had no brakes, and um, the ministry never picked up on the fact that they were only a certain tear, and they really weren't strong enough, but they did the job, and what Ian and, Ian and uh, Bill did there was fantastic, and they were vacuum, so that was okay. So the 40-footer was vacuum. Of course, those hydro houses out of, out of Mary Mary were all done on those sort of trailers, and uh, we progressed through that into the uh, generation of change. 
and in that time my dad actually copied the 40-foot trailer and he had a, a similar one built and with a tid walking back end and uh, had a J6 Bedford that he used to do it and he endeavoured to try and shift the house from Hamilton to Turangi and it took him 17 hours so uh, that was the end of that, he only did one, that was the end of it. The advent of trailers, uh, you, you're probably conscious of what's the change. By chance one day this Chetamilo guy, or Manu Tuanui was his background, he came into my yard at Tamahiri, he said I believe that you could be interested in a trailer. I knew of him as, a, as he had New Zealand Arc welders in Rotorua and his main job was building logging trailers with, the, uh, with arc, arc welding out on the sand and massive big beams and he did a trailer for the local opposition, Dick Devadia, and I said well similar to that but so anyhow I drew on the sand with a stick what I said to Manu and he, so I disappeared to his yard and here was Peterkin in a, in a caravan, he'd obviously hadn't been there long and um, Manu said there's a young fellow over there in the caravan you go and talk to him. So I did. You might say that uh, Neil and I became very close friends straight away. And uh, you could probably say for me, I knew what I wanted. So on the, in the, in the, the, with a the stick in the sand, you draw in the sand what you wanted. And uh, Neil being an engineer, he could pick up on the thoughts. And uh, uh, that's really how it all started. It had to be, I said to, to Neil, it wants to be hydraulic and the ministry wouldn't listen. And they said it had to have springs. And the history of springs, it, it's suicide because the springs would collapse on one side and expand on the other. So if you wanted to tip a house off, have a chassis with springs. In the oh, early days, okay. yeah, yeah. we used to wire the, the chassis down with a number eight wire and a block of wood and we'd screw the chassis down to the axle. And uh, that's how we got away with it. We could hold the balance by being rigid. So anyhow, Peterkin uh, got to work and he built the trailer. All to done without a permit, without any authority. The ministry weren't involved. It became a trombone. And, uh, of course, it was 825 tyres with the, the three axles all joined together at the back with a, a floating bogey. The time came uh, some months later. The, I was at a testing station at Rotorua and the uh, vehicle inspector said, uh, your idea of the hydraulic trailer, what do you think about it? And I said, well, we've actually built one. It goes good. It goes to... Goes to Turangi every night. Got, <laughs> got a house on it. Want to come round and have a look? So I chucked him in the car and away we get. And he gets there and of course here it is sitting in the yard with the house on it. So uh, he didn't say too much. He walked all around it and it had a Wankel motor up on the front on the gooseneck and uh, self uh, self controlled. So I started it up and I lifted it up and did all this and did all that. And he said, well. Um, how come, you know, he said, you're not an engineer. I said, didn't have to be. I said, I had a fellow Peterkin. I said, he's done the structural work. He said, well, how did you certify it? I said, well, all I did, I took the number plate off that trailer and put it on there. And I said, we've been going to Turangi for six months. And I said, you fellas weren't interested. So I said, we've proven a point. And I said, the, the hydraulic, you can throw the springs out the window. I said, your future trailers should be hydraulic, okay? So you could say that that was the change in generation of, we'll call it trailer design. And Neil, I, I give him full credit for what he's done. And we did several trailers. And I've sat with him many a time at night time with a drawing board and we'd spend all night until 7am in the morning and the drawings would be really complete <clears throat> and the fellas would turn up and uh, he'd be saying, well, we've got a job. And I'd say to Neil, you've got more than the job. I said, that, what you've just drawn is perfect. 
I said, what we'll do, I said, we'll build two, not one, we'll build two. So believe it or not, we'd build two, and the second trailer, we'd, we'd bundle it on a ship and send it to Australia, because he had a, a guide in uh, Surface Paradise that was ex-Rotorua, and he was a friend of Neil's, so he was able to send the trailer to him, and he had it in his yard, and of course, the, the minute the Aussies saw a hydraulic chassis, of course, they panicked that we were going to go there and start up an opposition, so there was skin and hair flying there for a little while. Mm. So... Uh, Really, really, that's really what happened. And, uh, of course, trial and error. Rather than have money in the bank, you were better to build another trailer and improve on what you've already done. And uh, the interesting story came as progress. We went from vacuum to air. So when a trailer was designed and built with full air, the trucks we had were still on vacuum. So the history unfolds. When we loaded the, the, the building with a truck with a... The, was a full air trailer and of course my truck was vacuum so uh, unbeknown to the ministry or other people that were involved we used to have a piece of melthoid and we'd put it in the Namco fitting so I'd drive the load with no brakes and uh, I'd have brakes on the truck but the trailer was floating so uh, <laughs> I'd, go, I'd go from wherever to Toorangi with a, with a 30 odd tonne house on with no brakes so uh, I was able to do that Never had an issue? Never, not an issue, no Especially going downhill, that was exciting. Mm. <laughs> so the, the evolution, the change, and of course it snowballed from there. And of course people, opposition people could see what we'd done and they tried to copy. One or two, there was a chappie in Levin, made a trailer, an engineering fellow, and he made a very, very good job, very clever. The trombone trailer, he made it so good that when we had it after a week or two on the ground, on the road with the grit and the sand, you couldn't open the trombone because the grit had got between the two pieces of steel and it wouldn't open out. So there's another learning point that to make a trombone, you had to have a, a bit of a cavity there too, so that the, uh, all your grit that you inhibited, I don't know where it ended up, but we didn't own it for very much longer. And of course, Neil went on to do wonderful things in his career. Oh, and Neil was like a fantastic guy. Just yeah. one of the icons of the industry, really. <clears throat> he, he's got a brain on him like a... I can't answer the, the fact that he's so clever, but I think it's a going back again to his younger years when he was he apparently grew up on as an apprenticeship on a ship, and then he got a job with the Mets, and whether it was in down at um, Levin or down that way somewhere, I don't know. But when he came to Manu uh, in Rotorua, of course Manu had him in a trailer, uh, caravan with a drawing board, that was all there was to it. But poor old Manu, he was an incredible guy and he was in terrible debt. And he actually said to me, he said, Warwick, he said, you can have this business, I don't want it. And over the years, in the succeeding years, Warwick Johnson House Removals, <laughs> you, had, you had both MTE and, and TRT gear? Yes, I, uh, I had a lot to do with, with TRT. I suppose it goes back to my dad, and uh, dad and Jack Tid were good friends, and of course yeah. the, uh, Tid always did a wonderful job. Um, there were opportunities that he did over the years for us, and uh, naturally I went to him, and uh, and then there was another young fellow that broke away from uh, uh, Transport in General, Robin Radcliffe, and uh, I gave Robin the chance to build a trailer, because by that time Neil had sold his, or the Mets had taken over Neil in, in Rotorua and paid Neil a dollar or two and uh, regretfully Neil moved away from the trail of creation. That, that was a, a milestone that shouldn't have happened. But the, um, so Radcliffe got involved and uh, the experiences you have are such that certain things you know 
that, that are good and some things that are bad and the, the gooseneck creation was to me important and uh, rather than just well two bits of steel you had to have a profile cut and the profile was such that it was immensely strong. Swaps had a trailer some years before that and the whole thing collapsed with the bulldozer on it and the front part of the trailer dug into the ground and the bulldozer dislodged so uh, history repeats itself. So Robin um, probably he built what I call Mark 1 and Mark 2 and uh, of course I wasn't interested until it got to the stage we had Mark 3 and by that time things were getting better and uh, he built a, the first trailer for me that was good and uh, it was a three axle close close axle articulated around about a, a 40 foot deck perhaps a bit longer tromboned out quite a bit there were things that happened in that of course being uh, air, air brakes and all that sort of thing then the, uh, we got to the, the hydraulics dissolved and, and came to the, uh, the discs for the, instead of the hydraulic brakes it became discs so uh, once we had the uh, everybody said that wouldn't work it would get all the grip but the, uh, the discs matter of fact they're, they're, they're what every truck's got them today an interesting thing that happened, and uh, this is another thing that changes your life. To get an over-dimensional permit, in those days we, we had the fax machine, and the early days of the Ministry of Transport, to get a permit was just a horrendous. You had to go there with a cap in hand and wait for your, the guy to sign the permit, and it, it, it created a problem to get a permit. And, uh, and, of course, as progress went on, they set up a central thing in Palmerston North for doing our our permits and I used to draw a drawing showing the illustration of the load and the weight and how the axle weights would be on the axle and this particular day I said to the girl down there I said that I need an overweight on that particular drawing that I've sent you and she said Mr Johnson she said I'm, I'm sorry I can't do that but she said if you had that axle out at 2.4 she said I would give you the extra ton I said well that's not going to happen overnight I said honey give us the the overweight for this one and I said I promise you here and now we'll design a trailer with a 2.4 spacing you could probably say that's how it all started it, little did that lady know how she changed the input on the hydraulic house trailer right mm. interesting eh yeah just like that just like that yeah and, uh, because then I was able to to draw to scale yep. the trailer with a 2.4, 2.4. You knew what you had to build to and get your in, permit. In that case, I said to Robin, there's a way to do that because in the early days, to get it onto soft sand and in the mud, we'd use corrugated iron and it would fold up and curl up around all your, your brake fittings and light fittings and it was just an absolute disaster. So in the designing of the trailer and getting out to 2.4, we're able to put what we call a skid pan underneath the trailer. Yes. So the skid pan, if you're successful you left the trailer down low but the skid pan would slide you through the mud yeah so uh, that that became a fact let's head to the front of the trailer at what's and uh, what's hooked to the front of it when uh, Peter had built the Tui trailer of course the the uh, turntable that we had on the truck this is interesting actually the I bought a, a former two Mercedes truck and we were going to use it on that trailer and the first day I put it under there it was absolutely hopeless so I I gave that truck away to Taylor and Cully and they gave me a, an international, an R190, was an R200 with a, an 8V53 Detroit and of course the, uh, the gooseneck was only made long enough to take for a short 4x2 
So straight away we had to shift the turntable and we put the turntable some eight or nine inches back behind the centre line. If you're a truckie and reading the ins the instructions of how your turntable was, it had to be so many whatever, whatever, and it was a forward length. And here we were with the turntable about eight inches behind the centre line. <laughs> and you know, the ministry never ever, ever picked that up, but it was brilliant because it took the front axle off the ground. And we're in soft ground with a bit of power. All the weight was on the back end, so we had ultimate traction. So, and was that a good machine, that truck? So, yeah, the, the truck was a fantastic truck. So what it, sort of gearbox in that truck? Oh, it had a five-speed with a four-speed. And, uh, of course... I was, you could probably say I was a professional driver. I could drive it without using the clutch. I could do all sorts of things. So for three years, from 1971 through that time, I drove that truck and we had a yard in Rotorua, Hamilton and Auckland and I'd line up Rotorua with five houses in that week and five in Hamilton, five in Auckland, back to Hamilton for five. So I did that for three years and that trailer became a legend on the highway because it was hydraulic. And there's a, a bit of a hard case story attached to that. I was coming out of Auckland one night, and I don't know how I came by. I had a whole heap of, of steel, angle-on steel, that was about 40 feet long, and I think it was quite heavy. And the cop picked me up and took me to the Otahu way station, and it was coming on daybreak. It was a bit foggy. I drove up the ramp, and uh, me being smart, the West Coast mirrors, I was able to keep the driver's side out on the grass and the other side was on the weighbridge. So when the, the cop turned on the lights and tapped the scale on the weighbridge, he kept tapping it to think that, he said, you know, he said, I'm sure it's heavier than that. But what he didn't know is he only had half the trailer because the other half was on the grass. <laughs> so after he tapped all that, I said, I think I'd better get going, I'm OK. So I drove off and left him to it. Hmm. Because there was always a bit of a... There was a so bit you of, only got half the weight, the other half was on the grass. Yeah, exactly. And there's, like, there's all sort of, uh, I don't know, like good-humoured <laughs> cat-and-mouse shenanigans with, 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 in those days, wasn't there, with, you know? Oh, it's true. Yeah. I, I think that I put it down to the fact that because you had to deal with the ministry so much and the permits and all that consternation of time, it was absolutely brutal to try and get permits. And the, the senior traffic police guys... Um, They'd have their office girl in tears trying to give me a permit and he'd be there going away for a two-hour lunch break and he wouldn't have the permit signed. And taking a house to, say, Auckland, you or used to go around to the North Shore, to Albany, you had to get a permit from Hamilton and one from Papakura, one from Mount Roskill where Keith Hay was because he was difficult. And then we'd go around to... Uh, uh, down to the... round onto Albany to... Um, uh, trying to think where it was, but anyhow, the, so you had three or four lots of permits that you had to get, and of course when you had different cops that would come on through the night, um, of course you had this piece of paper with all these signatures on it, and it was just a nightmare. What a nightmare. Oh, absolute. The international brand was a good brand for oh, you? Oh, fantastic truck. It was an R200 X, X Air Force, and it had a, an 8V53, it was 200 and... 37 horsepower, which was, in those days, we never had horsepower. The, uh, you know, the, your trucks, the, the 6V53 Detroits that we had, they were only 195 horsepower. We ended up with Ross Todd with those when we changed from, we had a petrol to diesel. Ross Todd did two, three, four, about five of those for me. And then we set up our own workshop in Rotorua and... Uh, we used to buy the trucks from Forest Products for £2,000, I suppose it was, maybe dollars. 
and we'd get rid of the back end for that sort of money. So we'd end up with a cab and a chassis, and uh, and then we'd buy four Detroits in one go from Clyde Engineering, and uh, we'd set to 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 build these trucks. And uh, what happened? The inland revenue uh, got a bit smart, and uh, they started pushing me a little bit. So they came to our yard in Rotorua and uh, they asked all sorts of questions that you could well understand. And what was this and what was that? And of course I had an answer for all of them. And uh, as the, the token that most truckies have got is what you call R&M. So that was repairs and maintenance. So I bluffed the guy with all the R&M and all the old motors that were, were laying there, but he didn't realise that we were, were actually building a new truck out of, out of whatever. And... Uh, and of course, I bought the million mile of diffs off, off Tids, and yep. uh, we built a magic truck. The name Warwick Johnson House Removals is sort of in in many ways again again touching on for people sort of in my era. Um, there's two big R700 Max that suddenly. So how did the Max come about? It goes back to 1973. I, I waltz on a bit, but we went to Australia to a truck show in, in, in there, and we went to a place called Toowoomba. And there was a guy at Tewoomba that had a fleet of 400-odd trucks. And in that workshop, he was building the Leader, which is a truck that was homemade, you might say, with a cat motor and was a, a very, very strong truck. In, in, the, in the days, 1973, nobody had any horsepower. The, the little R600 Mac was 237 horsepower. That was maximum. And these Caterpillar motors that they were doing was probably about the same. But this Cyril guy introduced us to this and that, and uh, there was something like 30 or 40 of us there. It was like a banquet meal with all the silver, and the, the meal was fantastic, and the, the guy was sure that we were going to buy some of his leader trucks. But the uh, tucked in the corner was an R600 Mac from America, and it was sitting down in the dust, and one of us said, what's, what's that truck doing down there? I suppose you could say to me, in my early days as a, a young fella carting the houses to Puriora, the Mack trucks they had in there were, were about 10 foot wide and they didn't have a cab, but they were ex-military and those two Mack trucks they had carting the logs gave me the history that if it was a Mack truck it was going to be good. So anyhow, Ron Carpenter was there, and this is history. Um, Ron told me in later years that there was, out of say 40 or 50 of us, half of us that day signed up for an R600 Mack. So that put motor truck all on the business of, and they imported this truck, I think it was $47,000 by then, 1973. So that was all right. So come time, and uh, Ron Carpenter got cracking, and these, uh, he started assembling trucks from, directly from the States. And, of course, the horsepower had gone up into uh, 300, 375, and the... Uh, I went down there, I thought, well, I'm going to have a look at these Macs. I had some money in my pocket, and I thought, well, I'll at least get one. But when I got there, the, the guy that was doing the assembly work, I said, oh, you can walk through the workshop, no health and safety in those days. Anyhow, he said, there's two of those, two Macs away over there parked up. He said, they've been there for a, a fair time. He said, nobody wants them. He said, they've got 44s. Well, I knew what he was talking about. The 44s are the, the size of the diff. And most truckies only wanted 39 because there was the extra weight and weight was a problem. But for house removal, we never overweighted. The house is not heavy. But anyhow, I said, well, I'd be interested in one of those. So anyhow, the conversation went on. Well, he ended up with the, the price at 93000
pounds. So in the delay and the discussion, the other one, the other truck was shivering and sitting there on its own. And I said, well, how about the other one? Can I have that too? So we negotiated a deal that was better than 93,000. So I ended up with two Mack trucks and they were 375. Absolutely brilliant. And we thought we were the king of the road, which we probably were at the time. So they were like 375 V8s? Yeah, V8s. Yeah, yeah. and they, what did they have, the old 12-speed maxi torque yeah, in them? They were t- yeah, they, were, they weren't favourable to the average truckie. They had a, a heating problem to do with the V8 part of the fact of it. But the fact that, from a house removal point of view, we might only be three or four hours and we'd park up, and the motor, we weren't expecting to do 24 hours around the clock. Yeah, yeah. But those two trucks were good for you? Oh, we had them. <laughs> the biggest mistake I made when I had them, I had them for 21 years. When I had them for 10 years, I should have got rid of them and got two new ones. But they were so reliable and regular, they were fantastic, and you could hook a bulldozer on and pull the hell out of them, or the you know, front bumpers were strong enough to do what you wanted. You couldn't kill them. They were absolutely outstanding, and I, in in that time I had several Macs, and uh, I think I've added up, I've had about 10 of them in my time. Oh, and they're all been good trucks to you. Oh, fantastic. They were outstanding. Another couple of trucks that I want to talk to you about, and I've had a couple of people who knew I was coming to talk to you, uh, ask me to ask about the uh, Nissan Diesel TW52As. Oh, yeah. how, how were they to you? Were they that good happened, truck? That happened... Uh, it was around about 19, 1984, and again, a group of us went to Japan, and the idea was that I was interested in a, in a Nissan truck. The Nissan people actually shouted us a deal. So uh, we go there, and yes, here's the Nissan here. I want one of those. I want two of them. So I bought two of them, and uh, they were they were 6 for 4 I actually wanted a 6 for 6 and they had the 6 for 6 on the, 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 the chain line building them, but they were all going to Africa. And uh, they wouldn't talk to me about a, a six-wheel drive, so I got a, I got the Nissans as they were. Um, I could say to you now, those Nissans were absolutely brilliant. They were, the you put the two trucks side by side, because we had the we had a lot of trucks with winches on. We probably had about ten internationals and other trucks with winches, and we set these two Nissans up with winches and whatever. And uh, if you were stuck in the mud with a 190 with a uh, with the mud, the Nissans would actually walk past them in the mud. They, whatever magic was in the back end of those Nissans, I'll, I'll never know. But um, they were just an outstanding truck. And they were what, 350 yeah, horse or yeah, 350? 330 horsepower. 330 horsepower. And they were, had a road ranger gearbox. If you never used a road ranger and used to the, the twin stick, you had a bit of a problem. Yeah. You had to learn to whatever. Yeah. But uh, it was, they were all right. They, um, they, uh, I tried to give them to my guys that worked for me on a, a labour-only basis, but they didn't realise the, the gem that I was trying to do for them. And I ended up with one of them out of the scrap heap, and uh, I rebuilt it and spent a fortune on it. And um, the history of that truck has gone to uh, Fiji, and uh, I put a new cab on it, and uh, I virtually gave it away. Really interested in the holistic vehicle, the truck, the trailer, and the engineering well, of both. As my wife said, you're married to your bloody truck. She didn't want very happy about me, and <laughs> it caused a few problems, I might say. I never realised the, uh, the importance of it, but people used to always say, Warwick, listen, hey, you've got to write a book. I took on board the opportunity to write a book, and uh, that's how it happened. And I never, ever believed 
that it was going to be history. And uh, I can boast to you now that's 70 years, 1948 to 1988, if you add that up, that's quite a few years. My brain is so ticking away like talking to you now, and I wish I had another 30 years, I'd, I'd sort of do something more about it. But the, uh, the trucking industry is on a paramount of fantastic opportunities, and where I live here now, T-Rail, they, they come through the town with 50 tonne on, they don't even change gear, up and over and through the hill and underneath the subway and they're gone. Warwick, you're very proud of your involvement in the New Zealand Heavy Haulage Association. Tell us how that all got started. That was an interesting story because being Peterkin and being me, and uh, I suppose you could say that the house removal industry badly needed uh, uh, an organisation. We badly needed um, a representation within the within the unit. So anyhow, why can't a heavy haulage? This goes back to George Scott and Scotty. And I said to him, how about I come with you to your Wairaki, to your AGM for your heavy haulage? And so me being me, I ended up with Scotty and I'm sitting there with all these guys all smartly dressed with their ties and all the, they had a pretty unique sort of an outfit that was like a like the gentleman's club. And here I was just in an old pair of clothes with no tie on, <laughs> sitting there <laughs> listening to what they're going on about. And I, I actually said that because I'd been to America and I'd witnessed the heavy haulage in America, it's all done by building removal people because they're clever, must I say. So anyhow, I was able to tell these guys that anything over three or four metres wide, they couldn't handle it, they were scared of it. And uh, I said, well, why don't we, we sort of bring our house removal guys and we could create a, a better association, we could do something about it. Richard Hyde, he was quite a snappy little fella and... Uh, he sort of chiselled me a bit and uh, Trevor Jones was down the other end of the room and, and they were arguing about things and uh, um, in the end I sort of won the day and uh, they said, well, in that case we're going to have to have a logo and I said, so there again, <laughs> these two guys were arguing whether it was a Kenworth or a Mac or a, or a Peterbilt and I said, well, you don't need that, all you need is a, is a, is a trailer, a house removal trailer. And one of them said, well, you're a smart bugger. I said, I know that. So anyhow, they put it to me. They said, the next meeting you can come, but bring your, your ideas. So, of course, I did that. And what they didn't know, that working for me was uh, Robin. Uh, his wife was a, was a graphic artist for the Waikato Times. Anyhow, I said to Robin, how about we talk to your wife about this is what I want to do. We've got to want to put this. This is how we want to do it. So I drew it out. So she came up and we sort of sat down side by side and the, the deal came with this hydraulic trailer. And What you've got to do now, you've done such a good job, let's put a bit of red on it like lipstick because it's all female oriented. So the, 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 the drawing's got red on the, and which is the lipstick. I tabled it at the next meeting and of course uh, it was unanimous, it was accepted. I suppose I stirred the, the tripe in that day and they say that within probably the next 12 months we had a membership equal to way beyond these five or seven guys that were smartly dressed, a, a whole heap of hobo house removal guys all sitting around a room where we were setting up a, a, a deal between us and uh, I told them, I said, you guys will melt away into the system, which did happen and uh, consequently we've got a, a fantastic membership with the New Zealand Heavy Haulage, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that. Proceeds of the book are going to St John's? That's right. I've been talking to my Heavenly Father, and he doesn't want me to take a heap of money with me, so I've got a dollar or two to one side, and my idea to support St John's, and 
I think on the highway today, the St John's people struggle to survive. The fire department have got fire and rescue written on their vehicles. What St John's gets 72% from the crazy government and uh, they've got to inherit the other by donations for people. So within my book, I've, uh, I've dedicated an ambulance and uh, that's going to be part of me. I'm very happy about that. So that's another uh, fantastic reason to grab yourself a copy of the book, that the proceeds uh, uh, of, of what the book makes will go to, to, to really saving lives through, through the St John's. Yeah, the, um, yeah the, the people of St John's, a lot of those people are volunteers, and today to day they've got ambulances parked up when they haven't got the staff. Yeah. And the volunteers are not being paid. The stupid government of today don't recognise they're spending it on silly damn things building like they tried to build that cycle track underneath the Harbour Bridge. But if they could support St John's, and even if they gave them another 10%. So you're also, um, you're also a great believer, and nowadays you don't think that young, young people can get close enough to the action. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I feel sorry for them. I, the, the industry's got to take... I don't care who you are, we've got to take on board the young people. And look at me at my age when I was 15, 16, I was driving a Chev truck with a load of sand on it that the traffic cop of the day, which was the local council, for two years he said, I've been watching you, but I never had an accident, I've never ever had an accident. The young people of today have got to have a chance, they've got to walk in and lean, they're not allowed to even travel in the truck and learn how to, how to have, handle horsepower, how to take your foot off the brake and how to drive without using your brakes, and, you know, and, and even in the building industry it's the same, and the younger people today, we've got to give them a chance. And uh, if we don't, already we're short of truck drivers. They, they've got, you go to some of the local carriers and you, you say, well, what's the, all those 10 or 12 trucks? Oh, we haven't got any drivers. After reading the book and, and going through it and, and it, what I took out of the book is, uh, you, you know, you say in the book that, uh, you know, there was a little bit of ego on your part for, for the things that you took on, you know, the, and did it so humbly. Like, you always involved people and you also, you always made it a venture. Yeah, I, I think that. I think I've ended up with enough money to have my own house, but other than that, forget it. I, I think it goes right back to my grandfather and I watched him and he suffered terribly and he got diabetes and lost his eyesight. In fact, he lost his eyesight. He was still shifting houses. And I felt for him, and I, I think I used that inference with Pop, that whatever we did in our life with men and people that worked for you, they had to be equal. We all had to be shared the same impact. Of we go back to those years when I, I probably first started on my own. I couldn't have done it on my own, and I had three or four guys. We're all the same age. We all thought the same. We all, we all shared each other's time. They all got paid. Um, I never had any money. I was always an overdraft. I was dedicated in the industry of trying to improve the welfare. When you look at it now and see the, the activity of the house movers throughout New Zealand, I suppose you could say I sowed the seed way back and uh, I never realised that what we were doing was entering into the book of history, like the time I went down to Fred Willis and, and gave him a, a set of jacks and I said, we're going to shift the house five houses, one each day, and how the opposition came along and I sort of stalled them because I wanted to help Fred and make sure that it was a success. And by being a success, it radiated from him and it bellowed its way back up through the, the South Island. And, uh, yeah, it, it goes on, yeah. I'm very proud of what we've done. 
what happened to Warwick Johnson House Removals in the end? Did you did, did you sell out or? It, it, I, I still own the company. I tried to dissolve it. My accountant said no, no. I've given Diane the reins, and she takes away any bills and debts because I don't understand the www.co and all my checkbooks are still in the drawer. You can have all them. Yeah. Well, I've given the company to Diane. She'd become a shareholder or a director. And in my passing, which will be in a day or two, here's an interesting thing. I've even down in the yard in my office here, I've even got my own coffin <laughs> leaning up against the wall. <laughs> I've saved probably about $10,000 on having a coffin built. So, uh, And the company paid for that. Warwick Johnson, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit here this afternoon for a couple of hours and uh, yeah. promote the book and share the stories. Uh, the book, as we've said, is called Prime Mover, The Remarkable Life of Warwick Johnson. It's an absolute must-read if you're a New Zealand uh, trucking buff. And uh, I think I'll give you the rest of the afternoon off, mate. You can uh, you can go and uh, do whatever you like now. With yeah. Thank you very much yeah. for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I'm, my, my brain is still going around in circles, but the uh, um, yeah, I sort of live with the industry. I can't. That's part of me. Yeah. It'll never change. And just a reminder, Warwick's book, Prime Mover, is for sale at nztrucking.co.nz backwards slash shop. Enjoy.